Hi there. Thanks for stopping by and uh, welcome. This is Dharma Punks, New York. September 12th, we're having another Tuesday evening in-person gathering. And that class, like the previous one, will be also zooming out for people that are not in the New York Tri-State region. But if you're around here and you want to connect in person, please join us. So that will be on September 12th. And if you'd like to support your friendly local Buddhist teacher in the Theravadan tradition who does everything entirely by donation, never charging, that would be me. The Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X, NYC, and other ways to support the work are on the website, PayPal, and Patreon. So thanks for any, even the smallest amount of support makes a big difference. Uh, so tonight, I'm going to be talking about exciting developments in clinical psychology and uh, one that has many ramifications in both treatment and uh, recovery and all kinds of therapeutic modalities it can also be done in a meditation practice. Memory, reconsolidation, what is it? How does it work? And uh, how can we practice it ourselves? Our brains prefer to optimize behaviors by relying on what's called automaticity as often as possible. Automaticity or automatic behaviors are fast ingrained actions that require no conscious oversight. And when we have routines that we don't have to consciously guide, it saves a lot of energy, it reduces the expenditure of calories, glutamate, dopamine. Automatic behaviors are mundane rituals that we can stop paying attention to after they're initiated. For instance, people go into the shower, and the next thing they know, they're toweling off, or they're, they get in the car to drive to work, and the next thing they know, they're at the exit to get off the road to their work, or people are shopping in the market, and the next thing they know, they're at the cash register, or people are, uh, I don't know, fill in the rest. Those are like classic example. So automaticity in daily life allows us to act like a, a kind of chief executive officer of a company where we can overlook the details and think about higher level important issues like how am I going to respond to that email or why hasn't my the date I went on yesterday asked me for a second date or something like that. Uh, automatic behaviors are very efficient, uh, and they're much faster than anything we do consciously. So they help us in difficult situations to survive. Um, so uh, in our ancient ancestral backgrounds, if you were suddenly uh, 
encountered a member of a different clan, you would automatically raise uh, maybe a weapon that you had or might instinctively through training run to hide because encountering a member of another clan might be one of the most dangerous experiences that you could uh, endure in your lifespan. So if we waited to have conscious decision-making, we might very well be dead. And Malcolm Gladwell used a famous example in one of his books that if you stop and ask someone how they hit a tennis ball or do a tennis backhand, bringing these movements to consciousness would actually ruin the fluidity of their backhand, and they wouldn't be able to do it as well because the fact that it's unconscious is what makes the action of hitting their backhand. I know nothing about tennis. I don't know why I brought up this example. But anyway, you get the idea. There are some behaviors, like for me, um, playing a piano, I can do it. But if you ask me to explain how, I almost become incapable of playing it. I'm not a good teacher of it. So, um, but there are other kinds of automatic behaviors that we never consciously learn like playing tennis or playing piano or driving a car. And these are unconscious, implicit, automatic behaviors that essentially form the bulk of our interpersonal life. They were developed early on in our childhood experiences amidst the countless interactions with caregivers and siblings and peers, and also observing, as Bandura showed, um, Albert Bandura showed, that these implicit learnings also involve observing how other kids get positive attention and what kind of behaviors leads to negative attention. And these social behaviors remain unguided by conscious supervision. These behaviors, for instance, the sudden uh, shutting down uh, in a public situation, freezing or getting anxious when we're talking in public, or the fawning behaviors of people-pleasing amidst interpersonal tension, the tendency to uh, self-aggrandize, all these examples we'll use, but they're not conscious choices. They were learned very early on in life, and they are guided by what some people call emotional learnings or emotional truths. Uh, In attachment theory, they're called internal working models. In some therapies, they're called schemas. Uh, a famous psychologist, Christopher Bolas, calls them the thought unknown. They're essentially beliefs about how the world works. And these beliefs, we never really state aloud, but they guide almost uh, so many of our social behaviors. They're kind of the unconscious beliefs that tell us how to act in tense or novel social situations. And I'll give a bunch of examples. 
So sometimes these emotional learnings can be useful or what's called adaptive. For instance, stopping dead in your tracks when you see someone on a street acting violently or aggressively or soothing someone who's in distress. These are uh, behaviors that very often are just learned by observation or expressing elation when we see an old friend to deepen the bonding. Uh, in my family, there was a lot of anger expressed at social injustice. No one ever told me that I should feel that anger, but by simply observing uh, it in my parents encouraged protest actions and confronting injustice as a way of life. So sometimes, anyway, these emotional beliefs that underpin how we act in the world can be useful, but many times they are maladaptive, and it's the maladaptive behaviors that sabotage our goals that lead people into therapy, spiritual practice, 12-step groups that cause so much of our suffering. And we'll talk about the Buddha, the Buddha's views on these emotional beliefs as well. So a child that grows up with an impatient, angry parent, where any mistakes are greeted with rageful outbursts, will quickly learn through experience that concealing their mistakes or blaming their mistakes on others is the only way they can comfortably survive their family system. So their emotional belief of the world is no matter what, never admit when you're wrong. A child may observe that thin people receive love and preferential treatment, but that same child might also find that food is their only direct source of comfort when they feel lonely. Food reminds them of the time their parents took care of them. So they're put in this emotional belief that food is the only way to soothe anxiety or loneliness, but you have to stay thin to get attention from others. And so that might lead to an emotional solution called binging and purging. Or uh, emotional beliefs can sabotage our ability to work and play well with others. Procrastination is an emotional belief that we never have to face the possibility of rejection if we become perfectionist and never submit our work to others. People pleasing and fawning can be learned as the most efficient way to deactivate a anxious or uh, distressed parents. People may learn, as I did, by observing their parents that uh, alcohol is the fastest way to alleviate social anxiety. Or from other parents, they might have learned addictive routines like shopping or social media or TV is the way to um, address loneliness. Adolescent boys may learn that self-aggrandizement is the fastest way to develop attention from peers 
and thus develop narcissistic traits. There's always these underlying emotional beliefs that govern how we interact with people, especially in new or challenging situations or situations that remind us of childhood traumas. Our amygdalas, in conjunction with the striatum and the amygdala, create these very neurally redundant links that initiate emotional response to the world. The only way I can survive this situation is by fawning or by getting out or by aggression or by shutting down and saying nothing and agreeing with everyone, etc., etc. These Emotional beliefs and their behaviors are based on not just frontal lobe, but subcortical, deep brain connections in the amygdala and the striatum and the hypothalamus and the endocrine system. So they're very durable and they're very difficult to change because they were formed unconsciously. Unconscious learnings are the most difficult learnings to undo. One of the most positive insights that people have in their lifespans very often, especially in spiritual practice, recovery or therapy, is when they finally give conscious language to these unconscious emotional beliefs that have guided so much of their behaviors. I rem- behaviors. I remember when I was first in recovery and just being saying aloud, oh my God, you know, uh, despite all the people saying it to me, I finally realized I'm an alcoholic, that all my life I've believed that alcohol is the way to manage social relationships. And that was 30 years ago, but it still was one of the most important insights to bring to voice the unconscious, the Freud uh, noted that one of the most cathartic experiences in the encounter between a psychoanalyst and the client was when they brought the repressed to conscious, when people could speak aloud the unconscious emotional beliefs that are guiding their behaviors. You know, when people can say aloud, finally, I learned from my father that if you ever made a mistake, shaming and rage would follow. So the only way I could survive was by denying it. And that's why it's so difficult to apologize and acknowledge I have made an error and why blah, blah, blah. When people can say things like that, there's this flood of self-recognition and relief. And suddenly their behaviors are no longer a mystery. The key is that instead of viewing our symptoms as a mistake, we view our behaviors or our symptoms that are self-sabotaging as um, a manifestation of an underlying emotional belief or model of the world. So once we can understand, like, our anxiety in speaking in public is the anticipation of social ridicule or rejection, which is based on 
all the experiences I had early on in school, then suddenly we no longer view our symptoms as just these mistakes. We view them as just early survival strategies that are no longer truly helping us. Now, uh, countless clinicians noted that in the right conditions, when we're uh, in homeostasis, i.e. we're relaxed and our frontal lobes are switched on, we can inhibit emotional reactions. And over time, through a process known as extinction, the ma- these behaviors might become less activated. So a classic example of dogs get fed every time they hear a bell, they'll start to salivate when they hear a bell. But over time, if bells are not followed by food, over time the dogs will learn that a bell sound doesn't mean they're going to be fed and they'll stop salivating. That's an example of extinction. Another example of extinction is if you give people a game to play where they see a red X on a screen and then they get a mild shock, for a long time afterwards, even without a shock, they'll, their skin conducts and, and they're, they'll tense, they'll flinch when they see a red X. But over time, that um, expectation will begin to fade. Uh, adolescents who fear any attention in class will uh, lead to ridicule from their peers if they are brought into a smaller classroom where attention is rewarded with positivity and rewards and uh, they're brought in with peers who don't shame them. Then over time, they'll learn that it's okay to raise their hands and share. But here's the thing about extinction, is that the underlying emotional beliefs can be switched back on at any moment. So, for example, many people who are alcoholic and achieve sobriety for many years after uh, they've um, started their abstinence from it, and they have even a fairly good recovery, yet in under enough stress, perhaps they've moved to a new city where they don't have a support group or they have a child and they can't go to their meetings anymore or they lose a job or they go through a divorce or suddenly a parent that was associated with unresolved emotions dies, they can relapse into alcoholism. Intense emotional experiences can reignite the old emotional beliefs that the only way I can survive is by doing this behavior, whether it's drinking or um, different sexual uh, practices or different addictive practices like shopping, um or intense uh, binges of TV watching or social media or uh, uh, constant addictive 
dating or whatever uh, are the ways to ameliorate underlying anxiety or depression. And so under enough emotional stress, even behaviors that seem to be uh, extinct can roar back to life because the old underlying emotional belief was never changed. The emotional learning remains latent, remains there. So even though in times in our life we can give up the binge eating or calling up one's ex or following one's ex on social media, uh, under the right amount of stress, the right amount of loneliness, not the right amount, just enough stress or loneliness, one can find oneself regressing back into those old maladaptive coping strategies because the underlying belief that those are the only way to survive are activated. The Buddha called these unconscious beliefs anusayas, uh, noting that even serious practitioners when under enough dukkha or stress can have a latent inclination to seek an addictive short-term sense pleasure like drink or food or uh, sex or whatever, or aggressively push away others or dissociate into delusion. Those are the three primary latent inclinations, which are, uh, you know, uh, clinging, uh, uh, aversion and delusion, uh, or greed, aversion, and delusion. Uh, Buddha also taught that these learnings can be stopped if we catch them at the onset of the feelings of stress in the body. He called this practice Vedana Nusati, that if we're constantly aware of loneliness or anxiety or anger or discomfort or social uh, uh, being ill at ease arising, then what we can do is um, breathe into, relax the body, and we can inhibit these latent tendencies. But the key is that even he acknowledged that only the most, in his belief, advanced stream enterers could actually get to a point where the underlying anasayas are completely eradicated. He acknowledged that they're always there and they always could be reactivated. Unfading across decades of therapy, Emotional learnings or these internal models uh, have an inherent uh, tenaciousness, I guess, uh, tenacity or whatever, that causes endless frustration to both clients, you know, and therapists and uh, Buddhist teachers <laughs> and uh, sponsors and 12-step groups. We may understand how important it is to pause and breathe before expressing anger at uh, at work or uh, in difficult situations, but under enough stress where they've uh, been inhibiting their frustration and their anger, they might find themselves... Uh, shouting at a customer service representative or at a complete stranger um, after uh, a fender bender. 
So many clinicians concluded over time that these emotional beliefs were essentially unerasable, that they remain stuck for the lifetime of each individual, that if somebody habitually dissociates under in the presence of an overbearing, aggressive person, that you might be able to help them inhibit that, but you'll never really get rid of that underlying inclination. And under enough aggressive, uh, overbearing presence, this person will once again dissociate. That's just their um, underlying emotional beliefs there of how to survive. They're unerasable. Uh, and there's lots of neuroclinicians, Juan Rosas, Mark Budin, and others, Richard McNally, who showed lots of research that uh, fears that seemed extinct, like phobias, can pop back to life under the right circumstances. Um, so no matter what, our inhibitory strategies, even our Buddhist impulses to pause and relax the body and breathe before we go into stressful situations, those can work in the short term, but they don't uh, fully change the underlying emotional belief that says the best way to survive tension is to become a people pleaser and fawn rather than be authentic and express your true feelings. So in the early aughts, an important breakthrough happened. Yay! Uh, neuroscientists like the great Joseph Ledoux, a real hero, and Christina Alberini wrote a paper that was extremely influential called Memory Reconsolidation, where they summarized years of clinical research showing that um, ingrained learned behaviors that were once thought to be permanent are in fact, in fact, invariably for a short period shifted back into an unstable, what's called plastic state where they can be actually unlearned. So even the most indelible early learned survival strategy that seems hardwired is not in fact cemented in the brain. That there's a duration uh, or a period where we can actually change the underlying emotional beliefs that govern our symptoms, like um, uh, addiction, uh, uh, avoidance, dissociation, that a lot of these um, responses are actually stemming from emotional beliefs about how to survive. And they can be shifted back to states where they can be actually changed and new learnings can be wired in. That's the key, new wirings, new learnings. So this period where the circuits are changeable is very brief. And they quickly return back to what's called a locked state where they are impervious to uh, all the willpower and everything we try to do to change them. But the key is that even the most dogged, learned, ancient behavior 
has been shown to be neuroplastic and prone to what's called memory reconsolidation. That means when the memory is hot, it can be changed. And it turns out there's a very good reason for this. You see, memory in the brain is not like memory on a computer. On a computer, if I have a Word document or uh, a, even more importantly, a, uh, <laughs> a uh, music MP3 or whatever, and um, I go to that, I click on that music or that Word doc, it's going to be exactly the same as the last time I clicked on it. It's not going to change. But memories don't work that way. Every time they're activated, there's a period where they're hot and they recreate the state in the brain that's similar to the original state. So if in the present, um, someone feels lonely and they're at home alone and in their childhood, they learned the best way to ameliorate or mitigate loneliness was through food, eating. Then when they're now an adult at home alone and they're right at the kitchen cupboard and they're about to open it and grab the, um, I don't know, the cookies, whatever, at that moment, the underlying emotional belief and the emotional learnings are now hot. And at that very moment that they're actually guiding us to the old behavior, there's actually the possibility of changing those learnings. What's critical is that while the circuits that connect the orbital frontal and the striatum and the amygdala and the basal ganglia, that this while this circuit is hot and active and leading us towards the old behavior, that we're uh, exposed to what's called disconfirming evidence, that everything we expected to happen is shown to us to be not true. And that there's another truth there. It's called a juxtaposing experience. So, for example, if someone is about to eat uh, as a way to uh, alleviate their loneliness or their feeling of disappointment about their job or uh, ending of a relationship, and just before they eat, they have someone that says, hey, before you grab that, just let's bring to mind how much uh, feelings of shame you experience after you binge and purge or you just continuously binge on carbs and then you regret it. Let's visualize that or let's bring to mind a positive image of other ways to alleviate loneliness like a mat remember the time you called up uh your old friend and talked with that with that person and how that alleviated the loneliness if when someone's about to go to a social gathering and they instinctively uh have the image of drinking but someone reminds them of all the times they're 
alcohol consumption brought unwanted negative attention and makes them helps them visualize all the other ways in the past without alcohol they've gotten and received positive attention then what you're doing is you're changing the underlying emotional belief a classic example of this that we see all the time is suppose you're at a party and you meet someone and they're very attractive and um you flirt with them for a long period and you exchange numbers and then subsequently uh you you know even stalk that person on social media and then you mention to your friend oh i met this person at the gathering and and aren't they great and your friend says yeah but they're married that disconfirming evidence that they're not available that in fact they were engaging in some kind of furtive uh, intrigue but that they're not really available for a relationship assuming they're not an open marriage uh will disconfirm the attraction for most of us <laughs> hopefully and uh it'll cause a sense of underlying disgust not an attraction anymore associated with that person uh, another example an adolescent who believes that um they find out that um uh some image they shared with their uh boyfriend or girlfriend is now being shared on social media and they believe that the social uh maybe slut shaming they'll experienced uh, as it's called uh from friends will lead to uh social exclusion and they might be disconsolate but then if someone who's kind actually shows them uh images of all the sex positive stars like Cardi B and Peaches and Ariana Grande and Lady Gaga and you name them and says look how these people have actually gotten popularity by being open about their sexuality is nothing to be ashamed of then that can lead to uh a change in the underlying emotional belief that having your uh your sexual desires known by others leads to ridicule and rejection i can only imagine now people who have same sex attraction who for years might have thought any uh rumors of their identities would lead to expulsion now that there are so many positive open and out figures might be able to change the underlying emotional discomfort about their sexuality hopefully that will be something that's increasingly happening so the key to reconsolidation is an intense emotional expectation must be reactivated and we must expose ourselves to disconfirming evidence the brain isn't uh concerned with uh, maintaining these old beliefs if we show not tell but show that the old beliefs are no longer true or helping us to survive 
Uh, if you'd like to read more about this, one of the most eloquent summaries is by the psycho famous psychologist Bruce Ecker, who wrote uh, many books on emotional reconsolidation, including Unlocking the Emotional Brain and um, or Joseph Ledoux's work or countless others. So what we're going to do in our meditation is after we calm and soothe ourselves, we're going to bring to mind a situation in our life that, or a, what we might call a symptom or a behavior that we're tired of. And we'll take a moment to see if we can uh, verbalize in our mind the emotional belief that underlies this behavior. Now, it's not necessarily that you do that, but it can be very liberating if you understand why the symptom is there, like the reason why I can uh, uh, be prone to stalking uh, an ex on social media is because I believe that way I won't be hurt by finding out uh, about their new partner through other means. This way I'll be prepared. I don't know what the emotional belief would be. I actually have never done that, but many people uh, have a inclination to do that. So visualize then a situation that might instigate an emotional reactive behavior. And while the inclination is hot, we're going to bring to mind disconfirming evidence that will lead to a new learning to take the old one's place. And hopefully as I lead that, the upcoming meditation, it will all make sense. So I hope something in tonight's talk was worthy of your attention. If not, I'll try to do better next week and find a really comfortable seated position where you can now uh, comfortably practice some memory reconsolidation. And what would be good is to, if you're on screen, to turn off your video feed so you don't have to worry about how you're looking uh, or just switch your camera so that you're off screen so that you can be not self-conscious about meditating. And I'm going to be the only one who has to keep my uh, camera on. And so if you feel so inclined, closing the eyes and... Nice long exhalation. If you can sigh, mm. sighings and exhalation engage our parasympathetic nervous system and help switch us slightly from uh, mobilized emotionally. Uh, or uh, cognitively active states to more relaxed states. So a few long exhalations or sighs or 
some people like um Sighs and just chanting along Om activates the vagal nerve, and that's key to engaging uh, self-soothing and calm. Slows down respiration. Yawning like I'm doing. So don't try to meditate, just close your eyes and relax. And just breathe out as long and comfortably as you can. Don't pay too much attention to the breathing in. Unless you're really, really tired and you feel you might fall asleep, in which case you want to switch the attention from the out-breath to the in-breath. Focus on making the in-breath as full as you can, and then just release the out-breath. And so let's try to find any sensation in the body that feels comfortable. Just scanning from the heels of your feet up through the legs, calves, the thighs, buttocks, abdomen, lower back, chest, arms, hands, face, neck, what? is the most comfortable sensation or place in your body. You don't actually have to name the place, just find sensations that are comfortable. And then with every exhalation just try to spread and suffuse that comfort through the rest of your body so for example suppose you find the most comfortable spot is in your forehead then with every in-breath breathe into that area lighting or bringing awareness to it. And then with every out-breath, see if you can almost feel that ease spreading to the entirety of the head or down to the eyes. If you find the palms of your hands are especially relaxed and comfortable, try to use each exhalation to need, like kneading water into dough, need that ease up the arms. Now, for those of you that find it 
slightly claustrophobic to maintain your awareness in the body sensations. You can simply relax and just listen to the sounds arising and passing without going out and finding sounds, without visualizing what creates sounds. Just allow sounds to pass through your awareness, replaced by ever new sounds. Finding the most distant sound, the closest sound, the most pleasant sound, the most discordant sound. And if those strategies don't work or float your boat, as they say, then just repeat a simple phrase. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. May I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. So find your practice, relax, don't try to meditate, just keep it very simple. Or just notice what your brain is doing, where it's wandering off. Right now I'm doing this. Try to make your practice as enjoyable and pleasant as you can.
So if you'd like to consider, continue the practice you're doing, that's fine. If you'd like to practice the memory reconsolidation approach we were discussing, what I'd like you to do is first bring to mind some behavior, some coping strategy, some tendency that you have that brings some degree of frustration for some of us. could be the repetition compulsion of choosing emotionally unsuitable partners, uh, fawning behaviors at work or amidst bullying people, uh, difficulty setting boundaries, could be addictive routines activated by frustration, disappointment, loneliness, or anxiety. Addictions associated with compulsive consuming or binge behaviors. Find any so-called maladaptive behavior or symptom, if you want to call it. And then see if you can simply state what the child in you who first developed the earliest versions of this survival strategy, what their emotional belief was about the world. For people prone to addiction, it could be this is the only way to alleviate my sadness or anxiety by consuming this substance or workaholism or some other behavior. Or if I make a mistake... I'll be shamed and receive rage and mistreatment so I can't admit. Or for shutting down in social situations, the emotional belief might be that people who call attention to themselves are the ones that get shamed or in uh, my family would get put in their place. If you can't figure out the emotional belief underlying the behavior, no worries.
So what I'd like you to do next is to um, bring to mind a situation where you feel an overwhelming compulsion to fall back into this behavior where no matter how hard we try, given this one set of circumstances, it seems we always wind up uh, disconnecting from the world, staying in bed, eating food we're not happy about, engaging in some behavior we feel a sense of disappointment with. What's the situation that leads to it? Maybe feelings of rejection, social disconnection, loneliness, un, uh, feeling not recognized. Expecting judgment from others. Whatever the situation is, maybe there's an actual memory of a situation where we found ourselves engaging in a maladaptive coping strategy. Just bring it to mind, visualize it. Visualize, feel the situation, see if you can recreate in your mind the experience of being angry, sad, lonely, find the right image, see if you can get to the point where you can almost feel the inclination to reenact the strategy. But now the key is just when you feel that impulse bring to mind all the disconfirming evidence that this behavior doesn't work. Literally show the what we might call inner child, the underlying emotional belief that food or alcohol or shopping or social media or TV or uh, porn or whatever it is that seems to be a way out actually is only making our sense of disconnection, loneliness, rejection, whatever, even worse. This is a showing, not telling. So you have to visualize or bring to mind examples 
And then lastly, see if you can bring to mind another more adaptive way to act when you feel these feelings in these situations, something self-soothing and creative, perhaps drawing, painting, writing, going outside, taking a walk, or it might be connecting with someone close and soothing. It could be sensual experiences that you don't regret, taking a warm bath or sitting by a river. Show these emotional beliefs while they're hot, other ways to respond. So when you're ready, we can bring our practice to a close for the time being and return our attention to the screen.